Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Great deal of concern about uh, the latest events in Ukraine. Of course, we know that many of the people are still without power because of some of the missile attacks on uh, some important infrastructure in Ukraine. And uh, there is still a threat of uh, what they call limited nuclear weapon use by the Russians. Uh, they haven't ruled it out anyway. And when accusations like that come forward, well, the best thing you do is change the channel and say, no, it's the other guys that are doing it. And that was what the Russians seem to be doing now. The Russian defense chief has alleged that Ukraine is actually preparing a provocation which might involve radioactive devices. Charles de Ledesma has some details for us. The Stark claim has been strongly rejected by US, Ukrainian and British officials amid soaring tensions as Moscow struggles to stem Ukrainian military advances. Russia's Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu made the allegations in phone calls on Sunday with his counterparts from the US and other nations. The Russian Defense Ministry says Shoigu voiced concerns about possible Ukrainian provocations involving a dirty bomb, a device that uses explosives to scatter radioactive waste. Russia repeatedly has made claims that Ukraine could detonate a dirty bomb and blame it on Moscow. I'm Charles Dilodesma. Uh, not the first time that accusations like that have been made by the Russians. So what is going on? How do we assess uh, where we're going to be going in this? Uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University to uh, get some insight into this. Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Uh, thank you, Bill. Good to be with you. When we talked uh, about some of the uh, Ukraine advances over the last little while, I think you mentioned at the time that there's going to be some pushback from the Russians. And, of course, we've certainly seen that with missile attacks on uh, infrastructure, on bridges, on power sources, etc., uh, which is bad news for the, the people. These are people targets, of course, not military targets that they're going at. Uh, what do you assess the Russian strategy is at this stage? Is it to, to weaken or break the will of the Ukraine people? Yes, the Russian strategy appears to have a couple different aspects to it. One is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to summarize all these and, and link them together. Uh, I think escalation and evacuation would be the two terms I would use. Mm -hmm. The escalation by the Russians clearly has been to take out the energy infrastructure capacity just before winter, relying on General Winter as their main ally going forward, since they are not doing well with their on-site generals. The taking out of the capacity for Ukraine to have heat and light, uh, anything to do with their electrical infrastructure, energy infrastructure, that's been a major uh, assault. The other possibility is now evacuation. They are talking about around Kherson. We have to get our we have to get people out of there because, you know, the advance of the Ukrainians might just force us to do all kinds of things. This leads to real concern, as you led into uh, this comment today, about false flag operations being used as part of a desperation move by Russia. The false flag in this case would be, you make a claim that the other guys are doing it because you plan to do it. So they are basically announcing, Bill, what they might possibly be doing. That's one way to interpret the two things we're, we're hearing about. One is that there's a major dam around Kherson. If Kherson falls uh, to Ukraine, that is, if Kherson, if Kherson is taken back by Ukrainian forces away from Russian forces, it would really be a major turning point in the war. So they've, uh, the, the Russians are saying, you know, the Ukrainians have mined a major dam. And that 
if it blows up, it's just going to flood everything around Kherson. So the evacuation of Kherson uh, by the Russians may be in preparation for actually a false flag saying the Russians uh, are saying the Ukrainians are blowing up their own dam, which means they might do it. So that's something to keep an eye on. But the, uh, the other one, of course, is this dirty bomb ac uh, accusation. Yeah, and, and again, uh, as you say, they seem to be planning these things and simply saying, well, if it happens, it's going to be the other guys that do it. And they, they talked about with the, the bridge that blew up a couple of weeks ago, too, uh, blaming that on Ukraine. And Ukraine hadn't denied that, but, I mean, uh, this back and forth that, that the Russians always seem to play here, simply any, any devastation that anybody uncovers here, uh, they simply don't want to take any ownership of. That's, there's a pattern developing here, isn't there? Yes, uh, it's, it's an ongoing pattern. Blame the other guy for what you were about to do or have done. The uh, dirty bomb uh, accusation requires, I think, a little more conversation. What they're suggesting is Russians have gone on a major and uncharacteristic offensive on the telephone. That is, the, as you heard, the foreign, the defense minister, who normally is invisible, has now been calling his counterparts in France and uh, the United Kingdom and Turkey, saying... A dirty bomb is being prepared by Ukraine, and we have to warn you about it. This has led to a very rare joint statement by the U.S., France, and the United Kingdom. Uh, the defense ministers have now released a statement saying, we don't accept this, and we don't want Russia to use this as an excuse. There's now been, after since May, there's been no contact between the defense ministers of the U.S. and uh, Russia. Now they've spoken twice in two days. So there's something building here, and we have to keep an eye on it. The accusation of a dirty bomb is a serious one, if that is now a precursor to Russian use of a dirty bomb, introducing it into this theater as they face setback after setback. Would there be any reservation at all for the Russians to do that on their own people, uh, Russian troops, just to make a point? I mean, it, it, I don't know if there's anything off the table the way Putin's been acting lately. We aren't sure where they might set off a dirty bomb. Uh, it would have to be in a way that presumably does not affect them too much. But, you know, once you have radioactivity floating around, it can go in any direction. It would be a very dangerous move to take, but it is one step short of actual use of a tactical nuclear weapon by Russia, which they repeatedly, repeatedly raise as a specter to force the West to back off. The uh, Ukrainian... Forces are continuing to make advance. One thing to keep an eye on is that the Russian attempt to replenish their troops is not going well. They are apparently dragooning troops. Uh, I think we talked about this last week, right off the street. And then 10 days yeah. later, these are sent to the front lines. The effective counterattack by Russia is done by their hired mercenaries, the so-called Wagner Group. The Wagner Group is now building trenches, uh, anti-tank trenches around Luhansk as a way to slow any, any Ukrainian advance. The effective use of mercenaries is also an insult back home. And it's brandished as an insult back home by the Russian ally, who's he's called Putin's chef, <laughs> who's in charge of raising these so-called arms-length paramilitaries. They're, they're just hired mercenaries. But he's now taunting everyone else in the Russian establishment, saying, I'm the only one who knows how to get something done. This, too, is... a a danger because now that's setting off intra-elite competition within the Russian pro-hawk uh, camp, 
to do something much more and much more devastating. How does NATO handle something like this? There seems to be a ramping up here, especially on the Soviet side of things here, Elliot. And there's always a concern about retaliation. And, and I, I'm sure you saw the piece in the CBC the other day uh, about uh, a, a NATO endeavor right now. It's basically, these are what they call sentinel planes. And they're basically watching the Russian troops and, and passing that intelligence on to Ukraine. So, hey, they're doing this, they're moving this one. There's a concentration over here. Uh, they're doing it from outside Ukraine. So, as you mentioned before, there are no boots on the ground here, but they're using that technology. And I know Putin's quite irritated by that, but, uh, you know, they're playing by the rule of, okay, nobody is there. We're going to give you arms. We're going to train you in this stuff, uh, but we're not going over there. But they are using the latest technology to try to help Ukraine, uh, and, and Putin is not amused. Yes, uh, Putin sees himself at war with NATO, but NATO is being very careful not to be perceived to actually be at war uh, with Russia. And that's been walking the fine line that NATO and the U.S. in particular has been doing all along. Here's the idea is that, uh, and this is kind of the way it's been positioned all along, that the U.S. and NATO will provide very important intelligence. There's been intelligence sharing acknowledged, although, of course, this is out of our sight normally, uh, with the Ukraine, but there's not going to be real-time targeting. So the U.S. is not providing, NATO is not providing information about, here's what we want you to do and here's how to do it. They're saying, here's what's going on, and if you want to do something, now you've got excellent information. You have a better way to do it. And that, as you pointed out uh, correctly, and, and it's very important that the um, information has been used to great effect by taking out the supply routes, by eliminating the the bases in behind the troops where there's uh, ammunition gathered, where there's troops gathered. So taking out the rear positions and also the escape routes so that Russians cannot, uh, the Russian, sol Russian soldiers can't get back across the lines uh, so that R Ukraine is now encircling them. All of that's going on, but the temptation, therefore, by Russia goes up and up to actually take out one of those Sentinel planes. And if it happens, remember, if we go all the way back to the U-2 incident and Cuban Missile Crisis and all that, uh, the temptation to take out those Sentinel planes, that provision of intelligence must be very, very high on the Russian side. But if it happens, and if it happens over NATO territory, in this case, Poland, it would be a transformative moment in this uh, in this long and dirty war. Uh, quick, i got a couple of minutes left here. I just want to pivot, if we could, a little bit. It was to something you and I talked about last week, uh, and that was some of the uh, the speeches and looked like some of the policy uh, directions that uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christy Freeland was talking about, uh, about a change in economic status and, 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 and strategy here. In other words, let's do the majority of our training and our, our trading with, with people that we like and people that like us as opposed to Russia and China. Uh, and I'm getting the sense from some of those new stories we've seen over the last couple of days, Elliot, that uh, people are starting to, to get into this and think this is a pretty good idea. Now, I think there's an argument to be made that it should have always been this way. Uh, but we've had a lot, an awful lot of people from the, the Canadian cabinet, from the ministers uh, down in Washington right now with talks with, with the, you know, their counterparts down there. Do you sense a stronger bond between the two countries, especially economically? Uh, because let's face it, if we're moving into EVs and both governments are in, in a big way making that kind of commitment, uh, you don't want to be reliant on Russia and China for raw materials. Yes, the, the political science term of art right now, uh, the word of the day is friend shoring. Yeah. If we are going to be dealing with each other, if we're going to be dealing with vulnerabilities, 
if we're going to be having to worry about supply chains, let's at least do it among ourselves. No, there's a great reorganization going on in front of us right now between uh, a great global reorganization between authoritarian regimes dealing with each other and increasingly this concept of friendshoring. Let's have democracies uh, form in effect a democracy NATO, an economic NATO, so that uh, we are going to wall ourselves off from being vulnerable. The whole idea of you know, the end of history, she's saying the end of history now is over. That is the conquest of capitalist democracy, which was universally going to be win-win. Everybody was going to get rich and deal with each other and the world would be at peace. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and uh, China's support increasingly for authoritarianism as also Russia, that is over. And now we have to realize we are into a new order altogether. And therefore, we should form an alliance among those states that share values. If we're going to be vulnerable, let's be vulnerable to each other. Uh, it's a very powerful message. And by the way, it's, it, uh, she did this at Brookings, and it's a very erudite statement. It's not, it's, <laughs> emphatically, it's not so far Canadian public policy. But she is, after all, the deputy prime minister and the finance minister. So we are having a call going forward now to have a global reorganization as a result of what's going on in China, as, which is going on in front of us today. The authoritarianism is uh, rampant. And in Russia, this is a, a different kind of order. China, in turn, if you've been following what's going on, Bill is saying now we have to have fortress China. If the world is going to organize against us, we have to look after ourselves. So we are now going to basically onshore, <laughs> onshore all of our defensive type capabilities, we're going to build them up. We are going to be so strong uh, that we will be the number one power in the world by 2049. It's a great reorganization triggered by the invasion, basically the return of history that Russia uh, inaugurated by attacking a neighbor and trying to change international boundaries by force. We thought that was over. It is not over. And that's the long-term consequence that we see unfolding before us now. It's a balancing act, though, isn't it, Elliot? Because, as you mentioned, China has ambitions and, and probably is destined to be the, the number one economy. You can't turn your back on them and simply say, okay, we're not going to play with you anymore. I mean, that would be economic suicide for a lot of countries, like like India, for instance, but certainly even Canada. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a trade balance that's supposed to be reached here, too. So where do you draw that line to say, okay, we I guess we still have to do business with them, uh, but we don't have to like them, but we do, don't need to be reliant on them. Yes, that's that sums it up very nicely. The same uh, that same address she gave at Brookings deals explicitly with that. Of course, even during the height of the Cold War, we dealt with each other. We will sure. continue to deal with China and with Russia. We will continue on issues where we have shared interests, like climate and some economics. But we will do so with a a different view of what the nature of the game is. Uh, so yes, there will be interdependence, but we are never going to once we will never do what happened in Europe, where they became dependent on Russian energy sources, and we in the West naively became dependent on Russian sources. I'm sorry, on Chinese sources. And China, by the way, has also for a while been saying we want to go up. And this was part of Xi's uh, speech: we want to go up the the quality scale. We don't want to be just the manufacturer of the world, the floor manufacturing floor of the world. We have a, a billion point four. Uh, we will deal 
with the domestic market as our source of income. And it was fascinating to me that China was so keen to have Xi Jinping's coronation go well, they wouldn't even release, as they always have to do, their economic data. They delayed it. And sure enough, it was bad news. China's economy is slowing down to the uh, below that point where people say, oh, it'll lead to domestic unrest. So we are in a different world order as a result of the Russian invasion and the decision by Xi Jinping that if we're going to be a global power, and we are, and they are a superpower, this is the kind of superpower we want to be. Wolf warrior diplomacy, we'll throw our weight around, we're not going to take anything from anybody, and we will take back Taiwan whenever we, we choose to do so. So we are into a world where there will see, be a different kind of interdependence. The lessons of Europe being overly dependent on Russian energy in an era of goodwill and interdependence you know, states won't go to war with each other if they're dealing with each other in these peaceful ways. That apparently has now been signaled as being over, and that's what Christia Freeland was talking about. Dangerous times. And next steps here are going to be so very important. Elliot, always a pleasure to have you on here. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.